Welcome to another semester of Amen. I wish we were together this morning, or whenever you watch this, uh, studying the Bible together with Miss Kim's breakfast, laughing and having a good time. Uh, but this will do. I'm just thankful that we're able to study uh, the Bible together again. After a couple of great one-off sessions throughout the summer, we are back to our study in Genesis. We'll be looking at Genesis chapter 33 and 34 today. A lot of material. Now, if you remember at the end of the spring semester, um, Todd finished by teaching in chapter 32. And you remember how amazing that chapter was. It's one of our favorites. It's just incredible. Um, the context was is that Jacob was dreading uh, reuniting and meeting his brother Esau, right? And rightly so, because, you know, Jacob had done Esau wrong. He deceived him, he cheated him, he defrauded him. And the last time we saw Esau, you know, Esau doesn't mess around. He was out for blood and he could murder very easily his little bro, Jacob. So Jacob was rightly terrified, but in that moment, Jacob knew that he had to make things right with Esau. He was terrified. But he knew that he had a deal with his brother. However, on the eve that he would meet his brother once again, God met and dealt with Jacob. And it was this beautiful passage, right? And, and what came about was is that there's this cosmic wrestling match between the angel of the Lord and this man, Jacob. And the result of that wrestling match was that Jacob was changed. God had conquered him with his grace. He conquered Jacob's heart, conquered his pride, his self-reliance, his deception. He conquered Jacob with his grace. He was changed. And to put a sign on that changed heart, God changed the name of this patriarch. Long gone is the old man Jacob, that lion, miserable wretch. Behold, the new man Israel has come. It was beautiful. Now, when we get to Genesis chapter 33, we see the manifestations of that changed heart. Um, it's particularly as it's seen in his relationship with his brother Esau. Evidence that, that God had done something in Jacob's life is seen in that relationship. However, when we get to Genesis chapter 34, we see that while Jacob is a changed man, he's a new man, he still has a very long way to go. Now, I think this study is going to be relevant to all of us because the same is true of us. If you are, an, if you are a Christian, you're in Christ, you're, you're a new man. But in this life, we have a very long way to go. Now, I think we're going to um, see some amazing things in these two studies. Um, what we're going to do today is we're going to uh, read Genesis chapter 33 first. We're going to talk about that. Um, then we're going to read Genesis chapter 34 and talk about that and talk about the differences between these two Jacobs. There's a lot of material. We're not going to be able to cover it all. And what we do cover today, I'll probably go too fast. Um, but I think we're going to be encouraged, informed, warned, but mostly encouraged by what we read today. Okay, so we're going to start with Genesis chapter 33, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of God. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the woman, the women and the children, he said, who are, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and, they, they and their children bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If, if I have favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing, 
that is brought to you because, because God has dealt gracious, graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus Jacob urged him and Esau took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and we'll go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard just for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord, meaning Esau, pass on ahead of his servant that I might uh, will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that they are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and seer. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of my people who are with me. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money, the piece of land on which he was to pitch his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us real quick. Heavenly Father, we're so uh, grateful that even though we're apart from one another, you've given us this gift of being able to study your life-giving word together in the book of Genesis. And Father, we pray that in our small groups or if we're by ourselves, you would do a mighty work in our hearts that we simply wouldn't be informed by what your word tells us, but that we would be transformed by it by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would correct us. We pray that you would train us in righteousness and that, Father, that you would encourage us, but ultimately that you would make us more and more like your son. We love you, Father. And it's in the blessed name of the risen King Jesus. Amen. Uh, some of you guys know who uh, Francis Schaeffer is. He's just uh, a gift or was a gift and still is a gift to God's church. A marvelous preacher, apologist, evangelist. Wrote hundreds of books that are worthy of all of our libraries. This is the one I'm reading right now, True Spirituality or rereading it. I love it. Uh, one of his greatest books is based off John 13 and it's entitled The Mark of a Christian. And in that book, he, he wrestles with the question, or at least discusses the question, what is the distinguishing mark that the non-believing world will see in a Christian that identifies that Christian as a true, show enough believer? And he comes to a conclusion. <laughs> and it's, it's an easy conclusion. Jesus says it um, explicitly. The distinguishing mark that identifies us as legitimate believers to the rest of the world is the way in which we love each other. It's the truth of the Bible. Jesus speaks it clearly, but it's seen elsewhere that to the degree in which the, the gospel uh, takes a powerful root in our hearts, that will be revealed in the way that we treat and love other people, especially our enemies. Now, I'm sure that y'all have heard that before. I'm pretty sure we've, we've had that lesson, you know, within the last year or so, even in Amen. But Schaefer says that that's a frightening thought. Um, it's, you know, it's a good one. It's true, but it's still frightening because essentially what Jesus is doing is he's giving a license to the rest of the world, the non-believing world, that they are able to judge whether if we're legitimate believers or not. That's heavy. Now, the truth is, that's actually uh, shown for us in our study today in Genesis chapter 33 and Genesis chapter 34. Uh, God had done a marvelous work in Jacob's life. And that marvelous work is put on display in chapter 33 in the way that Jacob loves his brother, his former enemy. And, and God gets the glory and, and we see the Lord at work in Jacob's life. But the opposite, unfortunately, is also true. And we get to Genesis chapter 34. And when we get there, we'll see that Jacob at this point is no longer following the Lord zealously. And that is put on display in his relationships, particularly his relationships with his sons and his daughter. Uh, essentially, what Genesis 33 and 34, when we put them together, what it does for us is it, it shows us what Paul explicitly teaches in Galatians 5. In Galatians 5, Paul is, is encouraging the church to, to live as is becoming of Christians. And he tells us that, that as Christians, we have been delivered from our old selves. We've been saved from sin. Um, we're no longer bound to, to this world. We're no longer in Adam. 
We're no longer an old man. Now we're in Christ and dwelt by his spirit, right? So we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But in this already but not yet world, we will still experience an internal conflict. Uh, Paul says there's a war waging in our hearts. Uh, A war between, first off, the desire of the Spirit. As Christians, we have the Spirit in us, and the desire of the Spirit is to love and follow and glorify Jesus, to be like Jesus. We have that. But we also have desires of the flesh, Paul says. We're no longer in the flesh. We're not indebted to the flesh. But we still have desires of the flesh. And that is in direct confrontation with the desires of the Spirit. So as Christians, our overarching desire is to love and follow the Lord. But every now and again, and sometimes for extended seasons, we fail. Sometimes we walk by the Spirit as we've been called to and have been empowered to, but sometimes we give in to the desires of the flesh. Another phrase that Paul uses, sometimes we embrace our new identity as being a new man in Jesus, but sometimes we fall to the old man we used to be. Using the language we see in Genesis, sometimes we live like the new man Israel, but sometimes too, the old man Jacob claws its way out. And whichever identity we're embracing is put on display in our horizontal relationships. Now, brothers, I don't know about you, but whenever... God in his grace reveals to me that that I'm living in such a way as the old man. It's so surprising. It shouldn't be. I know that I'm a sinner and broken in this life, but but it's shocking when you think about it. I mean, we know better, right? We 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 know that God loves us. We know that that we're in Christ. We know truth, but we think to ourselves, how could I have possibly have done that, thought that, been that way, lived that way? How could those have been my priorities, knowing what I know, believing what I believe? The Apostle Paul demonstrates that that same frustration and heartache in Romans 7 when he says that I don't do the good things I want to do, but I do the evil things I don't want to do. When we're in our right mind, if if you're in Christ, you you experience that frustration. and, And I know that you have had that before. There's oftentimes, too, that we become so discouraged. Right. Because we look at the fruit in our lives and we and we think to ourselves, man, I'm just not going anywhere. I want to be like Jesus, but it's at a snail's pace. Most of the time, I feel like I'm going backward. And we become so discouraged. First off, brothers, it is a grace that God reveals that to you. All right, he's shouting at you, but there's also a reason for that, which we'll get to. But that internal conflict we see played out in the life of Jacob. We're going to learn some things. We're going to be warned by some things. But ultimately, we're going to be pointed to the greater Jacob. We're going to be pointed to the Savior that we need, and by God's grace through faith, the Savior that we have. There's three things we're going to look at. First off, I want us to look at the fruit of living like Israel. What is the fruit in in this patriarch's life that God had done something in his life? We're going to look at that. Then, Then we're going to read chapter 34. Then we're going to talk about the fruit of living like the old man, Jacob. Then briefly at the end, we're going to talk about the difference between those two things. Okay, so first off, living like Israel, um, the fruit of living like Israel. We'll see this in chapter 33, primarily verses 1 through 17. Now, it doesn't take us long as we get into this chapter, as you saw, that there's something noticeably different about Jacob, right? Because let's be real, up into this point, Jacob was a real piece of work. We did not like Jacob. He had moments of virtue, but for the most part, I mean, he was he was a punk. There's no way that we would let any of our daughters date this guy. Right? I mean, he was just that type of guy. He was he. Uh, but but then we come to Genesis chapter 33, and what in the world? Something changed in this man. He's completely different. What happened to him? I'll tell you what happened. God happened to Jacob. <laughs> What we see in Genesis chapter 33, knowing what we know about Jacob, the only explanation for his change, the change in his life, is God. Brothers, never forget this. You are coming to faith. You are growing in Jesus. You overcoming besetting sins. That has absolutely nothing to do with you. But it has everything to do with God in you. So give him thanks. 
But we see that Jacob has, has, a, has a new power in his life. And what is that power? Brothers, it is the power of the gospel. Just think about it. All his life, Jacob, right? He was relying upon his own strength, his own power, his own know-how. He was uh, defrauding people. He lied. He schemed. He was in constant fear of losing, uh, uh, losing face, losing things, losing his life. He was terrified of his brother. Not only was he afraid to be reconciled to Esau, he didn't even want to be reconciled to Esau, right? But God. Chapter 33 he, he, he uh, displays unbelievable um, moments of faith, reliance upon God. And not only is he uh, reconciling with his brother Esau, he is eager to do it even at great cost to himself. The only explanation for that, brothers, is the gospel. And what we saw in Genesis chapter 32, God had put Jacob in a place that he finally could not weasel his way out of. He couldn't rely upon his own, uh, his own strength, his own schemes. He was in a place that he could not weasel his way out of. And the only thing left for Jacob to do was finally to cling to God and to become utterly dependent upon the Lord. And it was in that place of, of complete dependence, that wrestling match in chapter 32, that God cultivated a hope and a faith and a trust and a joy in the Lord alone. God did that, not Jacob. When we get to Genesis chapter 33, the man's got a limp, and in many ways he's weaker than he had ever been before, but now he is stronger spiritually than he had ever dreamed. God did that. Brothers, the point is that I want to make before we move on to the next subpoint is that you and I, we will never be the men, the husbands, the sons, the friends, the men that God created us to be, that God now calls us to be, if we rely upon any other power than the power of the gospel. It's just a fool's errand. We, we cannot be the men that we want to be, that God has called us to be, without the power of the gospel taking root in our hearts. I mean, you can have the most beautiful uh, sports car polished, the fastest thing ever. I mean, you can have the Trans Am and Smokey and the Bandit. That could be your car. But if it doesn't have an engine, it's not going anywhere. And you and I cannot be the men that God has called us to be. Nor can we grow in Christ if we're not relying upon the power of the gospel. Jacob had that new power. And because of that, he displays new obedience. We see this in verses 1 through 4. Now, after being made right with the Lord in chapter 32, Jacob wakes up the next day. But lo and behold, the challenge is still before him, the day that he had dread. And in many ways, it's probably worse than he had imagined because not only is Esau on that horizon, there's 400 men behind him, okay? Now, I'm sure this new patriarch, Israel, was, was intimidated. But listen, the old Jacob would have messed his shorts and ran for the hills, okay? That's who Jacob used to be, but not now. This is Israel. And even though this was scary, and even though this was challenging, and even though this was going to be costly to him, he went. Why? Because he was simply being obedient to the Lord. Now, there's a couple of things we, we need to talk about when it comes to obeying the Lord. First off, Christians obey God not to earn God's favor, but rather to live in response to God's favor. That's what Jacob did here. Jacob wasn't trying to earn God's favor. Jacob was so delighted of what happened in Genesis chapter 32. He knew that he was secured in his father's love despite of himself. And, and in response of that, he simply wanted to please his father. It's like our kids. My son, he is three years old. And by the way, he's learning what defiance is right now. So that's awesome. But most of the time, all right, when he's in his right mind, uh, there's things that he does to simply please mom and dad. And he's not doing that to earn our affections. He knows that we love that kid. Uh, we just pour the kisses and the hugs on him. He knows that. But he simply just wants to make us happy. It makes him happy to make us happy. And isn't that the life of a believer? As those who know that they're loved and accepted and cherished and adored by the Lord, we simply want to live a life that's pleasing to him. So obedience doesn't come from earning or wanting to earn God's favor. It comes from, 
from wanting to live in response to the favor that we've already received. Secondly, Jacob knew that obedience from him in this instance meant to pursue reconciliation with his brother Esau. Why? Because that's simply the way that the gospel works. Vertical reconciliation with the Lord always leads to horizontal relationships or horizontal uh, reconciliation with each other. This is why Jesus says, um, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples in the way that you love one another. There's a supernatural reaction in the heart of a believer when he knows that he's reconciled to God to pursue reconciliation with other people, to forgive as we've been forgiven, to love as we have been loved. That, that is simply the, the, the mark of a believer. So that's what he knew that he needed to do in obedience to the Lord, to pursue reconciliation with others. Thirdly, we also learn from this passage that obedience is not really about perfection, but rather it's about direction. I mean, <laughs> just look, Jacob's first attempt at pursuing obedience, there was a lot left to be desired. Okay, I mean, he was going. He was going towards Esau, but notice he put a buffer between him and Esau. I mean, he knew Esau was a bad dude. If Esau started throwing that sword around, he had time to get away. That was his intention. I mean, he, he wanted to pursue reconciliation, but he was still, you know, a little weird. But notice that God didn't correct him immediately. In fact, when it got down to it, Jacob understood what he was doing, and he went out before his family to meet with his brother Esau by himself. What does that tell us? It tells us, brothers, that it tells us that when we simply move in the general direction of the cross, you cannot be perfect in this life, so stop trying, but when you, when you move in the general direction of the cross by faith, God will carry you along in sanctification. Don't wait to be perfect because you'll never get there. Just start walking towards the Lord and trust the fact that not only does Jesus atone for our sins, he atones for our good works and all the mixed motivations and failed executions that's in it. Just walk towards the Lord. So Jacob has this, this new power. He's got a new obedience. Secondly, he's got a new humility. We see this in verses 3 through 11. Now, if anything's more surprising than his obedience, it's certainly his new humility. First off, notice, too, that, that God had been working in Esau's heart. <laughs> Esau was a murderous man, right? Uh, but the, the first sign of repentance, what did Esau do? He fell on his brother's neck, wept like a little baby, and hugged him. God had been working in his heart, which shows us that although it never happens or usually doesn't happen this beautifully or this perfectly, God does bless our obedience, but nevertheless, what's even more shocking than Esau's behavior is Jacob's posture of humility when he meets his brother. Look what it says. It says in verse 3, Jacob bowed down. Then seven times Jacob bowed down. What that meant was that his nose and his forehead was, was on the ground touching the dirt. He was in the uh, prostrate position as a symbol of submission before his brother. Jacob is taking up the posture of a servant before Esau. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because not only does it go against the character of Jacob that we knew before, but Jacob was God's man. The older brother was supposed to serve the younger brother. J Jacob was the patriarch. He was the leader of God's people. But right here, he takes up the posture of a servant and bows in humility to this pagan, this non-believer. What in the world is going on? The gospel's going on. This is evidence of the gospel. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that the path to, to exaltation and vindication as God's people is along the roadway of humiliation. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, he, he describes the life of Jesus. And he says this is by the means of which we are saved through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. But brothers and sisters, this is also the design, the model of how you and I are supposed to live life. God gave up his son. His son willingly took on the form of a servant, willingly gave up his rights, willingly put aside his glory and went to the cross to die a sinner's death in order to reconcile us back to God. Then he says right before that, Christians, have that mind among yourself. <laughs> the, the, the mark of a believer is this humility where we give up our rights. It's completely contrary to the world, but we give up our rights for the sake of the world. 
God was going to use Jacob powerfully, but first he had to root out this pride and this arrogance and work in an other-centered humility and love in his heart. He did the same for Peter. He did the same for Paul. And he will does, and he will do and, and does the same for us. God humbles those whom he exalts. There's this new humility in his life. It's the mark of the gospel. Lastly, we see this new heart of thanksgiving in his heart. Verse 5 and 11, previously Jacob did everything he could do to maintain and gain things in this life. He used all sorts of deception. But in verse 5 and 11 and through the majority of chapter 33, we see those once clasping hands now open. And he is begging his brother to take all of his stuff. (laughs) It's amazing. What in the world happened? The gospel happened. And what's really interesting, you, you, you see um, uh, Esau didn't really need Jacob's gifts, right? Um, he didn't even really want Jacob's gifts. He had more than enough. Where is he going to put all these things that Jacob wanted to give him? He says, Jacob, why are you pressing me on this? Then, and listen to what Jacob said. He was so honest. He says, because as I see your face as one who sees the face of God, please take these. God has blessed me. Please take them. What Esau is saying is, is or rather what Jacob is saying is, Esau, I know that you don't understand this. Uh, but the reason that I am the way that I am right now, the, the reason that you're receiving me like this is because of God it has nothing to do with me. The reason I have my family and all of these people around me, the reason I have all of this wealth and these herds and, and all of these things, all these blessings has nothing to do with me. All of them are a gift from God. I didn't used to think God was good. I had trouble trusting him, but now I know God is good. My life is the evidence of it. And so is this, so is this meeting between us. God has blessed me beyond my imagination. Now, all I want to do is bless you too, just as the Lord has blessed me. That's an evidence of the gospel. That generous heart comes out of a heart of thanksgiving to the Lord. Jacob is a changed man. And the only explanation for this, brothers, is the gospel. That's the only explanation. Jacob didn't do this. The Lord did. And Esau, just as Jesus tells us in John 13, knew that something was different about Jacob in the way that Jacob treated him. And the world will know, too, that we are followers of Jesus Christ in the way that we love one another and and the people of this world, including our enemies. But the main thing I want you to take away from Genesis chapter 33, friends, the reason that you're no longer Jacob, the reason that you've gained victory in your life, the reason you're no longer the man that you were even last year, It's because of God. And the only thing that you have to do is to give God thanks for that and to live in light of the grace and the blessings that we have received. Jacob was a new man, but unfortunately, Jacob did not stay there long. Um, In Genesis chapter 34, we see that there's, there's a new Jacob, or rather, the old Jacob. It's a very dark chapter. A lot of pastors, even a lot of scholars, skip over Genesis chapter 34 because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of redemption or redeeming factors to it. But we know all of God's um, uh, word is profitable to us as his people. And he gives it to us for a reason. Just as he gives us Genesis chapter 33 as a model to emulate, he gives us Genesis chapter 34 as a model to reject. So again, we're going to read Genesis chapter 34, talk about it a little bit, then talk about the differences between the two chapters. So Genesis chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the woman of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. But his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. He didn't really love her. He didn't repent. He didn't try to make things right. This was a lustful love. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in front of the field as soon as they had heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. 
Let's make marriages between ourselves. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us. The land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property. Shechem also said to uh, her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. As for me, a great bride price and the gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father deceitfully because they had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you. That we will become that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will make our daughters make your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we'll be gone. The words pleased Hamar and the sons of Shechem. Skip down to verse 20, uh, 25. Then on the third day after the men with Shechem and Hamar had done what the sons of Jacob had asked them to do to get circumcised. In verse 25, on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Shechem came upon and slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the um, Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But the son said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord. Like I said, it's a very difficult chapter to read, very dark. And we don't like to spend a lot of time in this. But the, the main question we have after reading something like that is what in the heck happened to the new man Israel? I mean, true enough, there's about 10 years separation between chapter 33 and chapter 34, but still there's just, it doesn't seem like there's any semblance at all of this new man, Israel. There's, there's major backsliding going on <laughs> and how'd that happen? That's the question that we have for ourselves often and we'll get there. But first I just want us to take note of, of the, of the fruit that we see that, that Jacob, this patriarch has returned to the old man, that he's living the old way of living. I think there's things that we can learn from this. First off, we see that he is living in disobedience. We see this in verses, actually in chapter 33, verses 18 through 20, if you look back a couple of uh, verses. Um, it's not just a moment of disobedience. He's actually living in disobedience. Now, why do I say that? Well, after Jacob left his brother Esau, he was actually a little deceptive with how he dealt with his brother Esau. But the major piece of evidence that we have that he is slipping back into disobedience is where he went. After he left Esau, he went to the place of Succoth. Now, that's significant because God had told him to go back to the promised land. True enough, Succoth is in, in the promised land, particularly the city of Shechem. It's in the promised land, so that's good. But God said more. God told him not just to cross the border. God told him to go to the place of Bethel, where he had that great vision of, of Jacob's ladder that we enjoyed. So he, he actually stopped about 24 hours short of where God had told him to go. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because halfway obedience, brothers, is still disobedience, right? I mean, when it comes to the Lord, listen, almost might work with horseshoes and hand grenades. I think that's the saying. But when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, only full obedience will do. Uh, he's disobedient here. And just like all of us, his disobedience came from idolatry. Now, what is idolatry? Idolatry is when we turn to anything or any person or ourselves, um, when we reject God and turn to other things to be provided what only God can give us. It's essentially we're dethroning God and turning something else into God to bless us. 
Okay, so there, there's idolatry there. And what's his idolatry? Uh, the people in Shechem. Uh, listen, God says, I'm going to bless you, Jacob. He, same thing he said to Isaac and Abraham. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to bless you. And so Jacob goes, okay, well, all right, I'm going to step into the promised land, happy the Lord. And then he looks to people for the things that God promised to do for him. Shechem was this powerful city filled with, with rich and powerful and authoritative people. It was a trade town. And, and Jacob said to myself, I'm not going to wait on God. I'm going to use these people to bless me. I'm going to use these people to make, to make my name great. He is living in disobedience. Now, because of this disobedience, he and his family are going to face some major temporal consequences. But what we learn from the very get-go is when we live like old Jacob, we're going to start looking to ourselves, others, or things for things that only God can do for us. He was living in disobedience. Secondly, we see that Jacob was now self-centered. We see this in verses 1 and 2 and verse 30 of chapter 34. Gone is the new man, Israel, who uh, knew that he was secured and loved by the Lord and out of an overflow of that love was sacrificially loving other people. In chapter 34, he is only loving himself. And we know that because, first off, he shows no concern for his daughter, Dinah. We see in verse 1, that Dinah went into the town of Shechem. Now, we, I think we can pick up from the text that she probably should not have gone into that town. First off, we know that it was a very dangerous town. It was a very violent culture, a sexualized culture. Um, it, it was just a bad place to be. And that also that phrase that Dinah went out, there's usually negative connotations there. Uh, but brothers, let's not blame Dinah, okay? Because first off, her dad... Not only her dad, the leader of the covenant community, settled God's people right next to those folks. It's not hard to think that, that Jacob himself went into that town often to make, to make business deals. Dinah is just doing what she saw her father do. Furthermore, she's only 15 years old. She's an adolescent. <laughs> and even if she was going to do this in defiance, and there's no evidence that she did, but let's just say that she was being disobedient. She went into this town. She's 15, and not once did her father, let alone the shepherd of Israel, intervene and stop her and protect her. Not once. He showed no concern for his daughter Dinah. Furthermore, he showed no love or compassion. After his little girl was kidnapped and raped, which is exactly what happened, the NIV has the more blunt translation but humiliated, uh, oppressed, the, the language that we see in the ESV, that's, that's oppressive verbs. She was, she was taken and she was taken advantage of and she was assaulted. Jacob didn't do anything. He was too concerned with himself. It wasn't as if he did not know what to do. It's that he didn't do anything. He didn't even reach down and pick up his daughter and bind her wounds. He's supposed to be the shepherd, not only of his family, but of God's people. He's a bad shepherd. He didn't love his daughter when she needed to be loved. Thirdly, the only time that Jacob did speak up was after his sons committed their horrible crimes. Now, they were responsible for their crimes, right? But the only reason that Jacob got mad or tried to correct them was because he was afraid of what it meant for him. He didn't respond in faith. He responded in fear. And he wasn't concerned about God's glory or the dignity of God's people. He was concerned about his own name. Jacob was a self-centered man. He was living the opposite of Philippians 2. Thirdly and lastly, Jacob was passive. We see this in verses 5 through 24, 25 through 29. Jacob was passive. First off, he was spiritually passive. Um, he was he was a spiritually he, he was living in disobedience, but he was passive. Uh, look at this. Um, after the the prince of the land Shechem um, uh, humiliated Dinah, Shechem again, like we said, decided he wanted to marry Dinah. It wasn't love; it was lust. But nevertheless, he told his dad that, and so his dad comes in and tries to save the day, and they make a business deal. <laughs> Not once did they apologize or try to make things right, but they went to Jacob and said, Jacob, listen, my daughter, uh, or my, rather my son likes your daughter. Let them get married and let, the, let that start something. Let all of our sons and daughters get married. 
Let, let's let's have some intermarriage going on. We'll, we'll, we'll get our people to be one people. Um, we can share each other's uh, uh, crops and herds. Well, we'll, this will be a great business decision for us, Jacob. I mean, how low can you get? They ruined this girl's life, and, and they're thinking about business. It's shocking. What's even more shocking is that our man Jacob actually considered it. Jacob. Notice that he didn't say anything. He's just listening to this business proposition. It was his sons that spoke up. Jacob was considering it. And Jacob knew what was going on. Jacob knew the promises of God. The people of Israel were supposed to be distinct from the world in order to bless the world. But here, Jacob wants to get in bed with the world in order to be blessed by the world. This man is far from God. He's being spiritually passive. Secondly, he's also passive towards injustice. His daughter, but also a child of God, a person of Israel, had been humiliated, her dignity stripped. Jacob is the covenant leader, and he did nothing. He didn't speak up at all. Again, it wasn't because he didn't know what to do. I'd imagine when things like this happen, the church or dads or whoever else, and there, I mean, there's no way to know exactly what to do. Um, sometimes as Christians in the church, when we see evil things happen out in the world, there's always that that paralyzation, like, I'm not sure what to do in this situation because this is so, this is just so irrational sin is, but, but at least you do something. We do something. Jacob didn't do anything. And we'll see why in just a second. But I think sometimes um, what we see in Christians and in, and in the church is that when there's great acts of injustice, whatever the injustice is, the church tends to be silent. Christians tend to be silent. And a lot of the um, reasons for that that we hear in the media is because, you know, we just want to keep the main thing the main thing. We just want to focus on the gospel. We don't want to be distracted um, by all these justice issues. We don't want to be distracted. We don't want to put a black mark on the church. Let's just talk about the gospel and that's it. But friends, that type of inaction and passivity is far from the gospel. We've talked about this before, time and time again. God regularly describes himself as the God of justice. He executes justice on behalf of the poor and the disenfranchised. The, through the prophet Micah, God tells us what it means to follow the Lord. He says, love kindness, do justice, walk humbly with Jesus. We see from Proverbs uh, verse 31, verse 8, where God tells his people to open up your mouth for those who are muted. Defend the rights for the poor and the needy. He's just saying, get going. We see in Amos that God rebukes his church because they were just focused on having great worship services. They neglected the poor and the needy and the disenfranchised and the voiceless. And God says, if you're neglecting them, your worship is just like noisy clangs. Jacob remained silent, not because he was being spiritual, not because he just didn't know what to do. He remained silent and didn't do anything because it was not advantageous for him. He was trying to become great, and this was just going to be a distraction. But he should have shouted. He should have spoke up. He should have demanded justice. He was far from the Lord. What happened to Jacob? He's living in disobedience. He is completely focused on himself. Not only is he um, unconcerned with God's people, he's even unconcerned, unconcerned with his own family. And he's passive. And he's passive towards the Lord. He's passive to God's people. He's passive towards the hurting. Something happened to Jacob. Now, brothers, whenever we act like Jacob, thank the Lord we're not like this in verse 34, but we're often like him in some way. And it's only by God's grace that we can recognize it. And it's by God's grace that we can join with Paul, who in Romans 7 says, why do I do the things I hate and don't do the things I want to do? And, 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 it's good to, to moan that and to, to grieve that. But we're still left with the question, why do we do that? Why, do we, why are those of us in Christ, why do we routinely go back to the old way of doing things, the old way of living? Well, Moses actually gives us the answer in chapter 34. It's found in the actual structure of Genesis chapter 34. Do you realize that the name of God does not appear once in this chapter? The name of God appears a lot in chapter 33 and appears a lot in chapter 35, but the name of God is nowhere to be found in chapter 34. Why is that? Well, Moses did that purposefully. He is showing us what happens when we forget or ignore God. For 10 years, it seems, Jacob 
had ignored and forgotten God. Or another way of putting it, he took his eyes off the Lord. Brothers, the difference between living like Israel, the new men that we are, and going back to the ways of Jacob is this. We must keep our eyes on Christ. This is what Paul actually teaches us in that Galatians 5 passage I mentioned earlier. In that whole section, he's helping Christians to, to become victorious in that internal conflict um, that we have as Christians. Desires of the flesh, desires of the spirit. Desires of the spirit, we want to be conformed to Jesus, love and follow him. The desires of the flesh is to be conformed to this world. We desire things that are not of God. He says the key to that conflict is this. Walk by the spirit. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? It means to fixate your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to abide in His Word, resting in His promises. And as we do that, even after we fall, as we're keeping our eyes on Him and returning to the Lord, slowly but surely, Paul says, the Holy Spirit begins to transform us into the very image of Christ. He says, Christians, put to death the misdeeds of the body, the, the desires of the flesh. And how do we do that? We do that by fixating our eyes on Christ, by beholding his glory. And as we do, we become more and more like him by the power of his spirit. What do we do? First off, we need to remember that Jesus is the Savior that we need. Listen, all of us are Jacob in one way or another. All of us are like Jacob. Chapter 34 is just the living out of Romans 3.10 and, and Romans uh, 3.23, where Paul says, no one is righteous, not one, and all fall short of the glory of God. Even on our best day, brothers, our good works, apart from Jesus, are nothing but filthy rags. We might not be as bad and as wicked and wretched as Jacob, but we're still little Jacobs. We're not above doing the things that he did. We must see ourselves in the darkness of chapter 34. We're also like Dinah. In one way or another, all of us have been mistreated and abused and used. All of us have been failed by someone. Some of us have been failed by the church even. We feel like we're voiceless. All of us have been sinned against and all of us have sinned against someone else. But the great news, brothers, is that God sent the greater Jacob. God sent Jesus Christ. God promises us that he would send a king that would actually love little Jacobs like us that are not worthy to be loved. He would send a king who would live for us because we couldn't live the way that God commanded us. He would send a king that would deny himself, put aside his rights for our sakes. He would send a king who would wrap us up and tend to our wounds and care for us and love us and speak for us when we are voiceless and when other people have failed us. He would send a king who would establish justice for all. He would send a king, brothers, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the Savior that we need. And the amazing news is, is that by grace, through faith, Jesus is the Savior that you have. He's the Savior that we have. At the cross, Jesus took every single one of our sins, the worst of our sins, past, present, and future, and dealt with them in finality. At the cross, Jesus identifies with our shame and our weakness and our abuse. The Son of God was stripped naked. He was spit on and cursed, humiliated and killed. He cares about injustice because he experienced the greatest injustice for our sakes. At the cross, Jesus disarmed every ancient power that is against us, Satan, death, and even our own sin. But brothers, on that third day when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he put the world on notice and he gave his people, you and me, the greatest of assurances that there's not one thing in this world that could ever stop, not even our own sin and failures, there's not one thing in this world that could ever stop God's plan for his people. Even though we fail, and even though we're in the mud, and even though we're sometimes in the mud for a long time, if you're in Christ, Jesus promises to get you home. He'll bring about a completion to the good work he has started in you. Though the, the church acts wacky sometimes, Jesus has it in its hands. Jesus will cause the church to persevere. He'll guard us and keep us. It doesn't matter what's happening out there. He has his people. His kingdom will grow. His kingdom will expand. And his kingdom will be here in full on the day to come. 
Though this world is dark, though there's wicked things on the outside of these walls, though there's injustices everywhere, we have the assurance that because Jesus rose from the dead and ascended on high, that one day justice will flow. And all tears and all pain and all heartache will be remembered no more. That day is coming. And what's incredible about this passage, which is absolutely amazing, is that Paul is saying, and what is implied in Genesis 33 and 34, is that the same thing that saves us from living, uh, from being little Jacobs, what saves us as Jacobs is the same thing that enables us to live like new Israel. And what is it? It's to fixate our eyes on Christ. Brothers, <laughs> the Savior that we need by grace through faith is the Savior that you have. The greater Jacob, the good shepherd, the Son of God, our Savior, our Lord, Jesus, the friend of sinners. Listen, when we notice that there's incongruencies in the professions that we have in Christ and the lives that we live, we got to take that seriously. It's a mercy that God reveals that to us. And sometimes God uses our brothers to help us see that. It's a mercy when that happens. Sometimes it hurts, but it's a mercy. But repent of it. Don't take that lightly. Just read through Galatians 5. See how seriously Paul takes it. Repent when we see those incongruencies. But even then, brothers, even when you know that you need to repent and you repent, fixate your eyes on Christ. He's good. He loves you. You can trust him. Look to him. Rest in his promises. Even when you fail, continue to look at him. Return to him. Go to him each and every single day. And as you do, the spirit of Christ will start transforming you slowly but surely into a little Christ. Brothers, I am so excited that we have a whole nother semester to study God's word, to behold the glory of Christ in it. That by God's grace, we might be transformed in the image that we behold. For our good, for the good of those around us, for the good of the world, and for God's glory. I love you, brothers. Have a good day. Amen.